On this episode, we're going to talk about the fact that great leaders make great bets. We're going to dive into the very first bet that like a young Johnny Page at his company Silvertrack ever made and how he thought through it. Then we'll go through and extract from that story what are the key points that you need to know about making good bets in your company and a couple of the pitfalls around them. I'm Johnny Page. I'm Matt Verlet, and this is the South County Podcast. Johnny Page, what's up, man? How's it going? I am doing well. I'm excited for today's episode. Good, because we're going to talk about your Instagram feed again, because I just love it. But you know, you had this reel that you did, and the title of the reel was Great Leaders Make Great Bets. And what I'm finding as we're going through this podcast, man, is that the stuff that you post online, there's always a story behind it. I can almost like see into your brain where I'm like, I know there's something you were thinking about when you said that thing. And I just, I love the reel. I love the content because I truly believe in my soul that like making bets is a critical part of business, which we'll talk about in a minute. But like, I just want to sit around for story time, man. Like what was going through your mind when, you know, you, you put that, that reel up about great leaders making great bets? Yeah. So I'll take you back to the origin story of what the first time that I made a bet and started thinking like this. And of course, Annie Duke wrote a book on this. It gave me some more language later on in my career. But I remember watching a video from Laura Klein. I believe it was on, it was either, it was during the lean startup, lean analytics, lean UX time where yeah. there was a lot in the startup world around, you know, shortening the time to feedback loops. And I was early in my time with Silvertrack and it, we were, all of our support was done through email and there was no, so we just had an email that one person was manning. There was no ticketing system and there was no help center. And we, every time we'd sell a new client, we would have to go manually onboard them. It was a very like labor intensive, exchanging a lot of one-on-one -on -one time to get a client on board. And our sale price, we were selling for about $300 per month. It just didn't warrant that much. It was hard on our uni economics. And so, yeah. I decided to take a page out of the, the Lean Startup book and I wrote out, it was a, a science experiment. I said, hey, here's my hypothesis. If we will make a purchase at the time I was advocating, hey, we should buy Zendesk. And that was a big purchase for us at the time. Let's purchase some software to help us go through ticketing to start to establish a record for a single customer of the tickets that they were having. And let's launch a knowledge base. Let's create some very short videos and articles that will help us get some of our time back in the way that we're selling our clients. And so I wrote this up. I said, hey, here's the hypothesis. Here's how we're going to test this. Here are the assumptions I pulled in. This isn't a written document. I pulled in examples of companies that were doing something similar. And I use it to get all the co-founders on the same page to make this purchase. And I think that was the first time that I realized, you know, 90 days later, we could come back. And of course, it was a it was a smashing success. Like, you, know, it's mm. not hard now in hindsight to see how using, you know, ticketing software and a knowledge base would help streamline our onboarding. But at the time, it felt like a big jump for us. And, you know, that really started to build this muscle that built a lot of trust in my decision making across all our co-founders. They said, hey, when Johnny makes a, a decision, he's thought through all of the different angles and has been a skill that I've developed more and more over time, you know, the bets got bigger and the, the risk got, you know, had to be more calculated and stuff, but, you know, still a skill set that I, I lean on a lot today. And of course that we use a lot when we're coaching our founders. Yeah. And I'll tell you the thing that I hear most, like if I get any pushback around this concept of thinking in bets, when I'm coaching founders, even working with my own team, the number one question I always hear is like, how do I figure out what the success metrics need to be? Right. Because 
you know, part of a bet is what you win if you win, right? And so, yeah. like, on on the Zendesk example, like, how did you quantify that, right? What was the bet you were making? You were going to see blank, like, what fill in the blank? Yeah, I, I don't remember the exact numbers, but it was a, re a reduced amount of time spent onboarding a client. The, the main bottleneck we were trying to overcome was we had one guy doing all of the onboarding and support and then we had you know three five guys selling and so we just quite frequently ended up in a point where we were actually hesitant to sell new accounts because we just knew the pain that it would cause once they were in our world so it was i don't remember the exact metrics of how we could buy essentially like broke down the support workflow and i said hey here's the part of our onboarding process that are the same every time you know we'll build out these faqs and you know, made the case for a 90 days from now, if this is not a obvious, yeah, that was a good decision. We basically negotiated the ability for us to back out of using Zendesk at the time they recorded or required one year commitments. You know, so I got us some flexibility on the terms. Fortunately, now they're a lot more startup friendly at the time. It was still a little more enterprise geared. And yeah, just made sure that we had a way to get out of it if we needed to. I love that, man. And you know, it's interesting. It's like the thing that, I see happen with founders, right? Is a lot of the time when I ask them that question, like I just asked you, you know, obviously it's more, you know, in the moment for them, but they might say, oh, I don't know how to measure the thing that I'm trying to improve. And it's funny because a lot of the time people will want to use that as justification to not make the bet and to be like, oh, well, maybe we're solving the wrong thing. I'm like, guys, like that's the work. Like that's actually step one of this whole thing yeah. is in order to move a needle, you you got to find the needle, right? So if yep. you can't measure the thing, like sometimes you just have to measure the status quo and then make the bet and make sure you're, you're instrumented to see if you're moving the needle or not. So I think it's a really, yep. really important point, whether it's time to first value or, you know, time to first response on support tickets or time to close, whatever it is. If you're not measuring those things, which you probably weren't because you were working at an email, at least knowing that like, we'll get this piece of software, we'll instrument to measure and then see what kind of improvement we can make over time. Like there's always a way to measure yep. your progress. There's always yep. a way. Um, totally. And even if it has to be yeah, there's a mix of like qualitative and quantitative. It's like, yeah. you know, we even do this now with our big objectives. We say, hey, how will we know that this is working? And, you know, some of them are like, you know, you'll talk to you, get input from these senior leaders and they'll all give you this type of feedback. Like that can be yeah. success criteria. It doesn't have to be all completely data driven, although it is good too. I mean, everything does need to come back and drive ROI. I would say that it's the exception that you can't find success metrics right. for the bets you're making, especially the bigger bets, not the rule. But Matt, I'll tell you one more, you know, one more story we were working through with a client recently who came to me and said, hey, should I, I think that we need to hire an SDR. I'm trying to decide whether or not it makes sense for us, one, to hire an SDR or not. And then should we outsource this or should we you know, build the SDR team in-house? And so we started for, to solve the first problem. We said, should we hire an SDR? And we take a look at all their metrics and we're trying, we're looking for, can we identify that this is a bottleneck? They were generating lots of leads. They're building their email lists, but they weren't able to turn those leads into demos. And so they viewed the SDRs as a way to solve that. And then second, they had a very well-defined market for who they were going after. So they said, look, even in the shortage of our MQLs, we know exactly who we want to be reaching out to and can, you know, have the be the SDR team be a dual purpose account, you know, account based marketing, very targeted approach with cold outreach and then handling the warm outreach. So we said, OK, let's take a look at how much is, are the SDRs going to cost? So we said, OK, you know, that just hard costs of labor, paying them software, all that separately, how much time? And we added a premium to that. 
then we said, okay, what's the upside? Like how many, what's a, how many demos do we need to get a closed deal? We kind of work a bottoms up analysis to say this many closed deals make sense. And we say, okay, how many appointments do they need to set? How many calls do they think they need to make, et cetera. To where now we have a very clear black and white. This is what has to be true for this to work. And then we said, how much mm -hmm. time do we think it's going to take us to get there? Because we're not going to turn the SDRs on. It's going to be available overnight. So then we set some criteria of like, what's our on-ramp look like? And we can model out for the first six months, what does this bet look like? And then a very important step was, we said, if we're saying yes to this, what are we saying no to? Because there's opportunity cost to every bet that we're making. And so what we ended up going through is a very, you know, a, a much more rigorous approach that demystified a lot of it. Like they came into the coaching call with a lot of overwhelm or, hey, we think we need to do this or feeling the pipelines getting dry. And we, we broke it down to a very tactical level to say, is this where we want to spend our time and energy? And the final piece to the second question he asked is, should we have an SDR team? Should we outsource them or bring them in-house? So we landed on, yep, it's a good decision to bring the team to, to start an SDR team. The second one was we said, hey, where do we want to be three years from now? Like, uh, the, you know, you get, they had ambitions of tripling the size of the company. And so we said, does that company three times the size in ARR that we are right now, are they still working with an outsourced company or have they built a team in-house? Like, is this yeah. a core competency? Will we need to learn how to hire them, train them, transition them off, tool them? And through that lens, very easily landed on, yay, this is a core competency that we believe we're going to have to build. We're going to do it in-house. It might take us a little bit longer, but we were to build that into the bet of like also learning not only how to have SDRs, but how to hire them, train them, et cetera. So that type of like thinking in bets has shown up multiple times and really helps, you know, get some clarity around what we, how we need to drive the business forward. So what I love about that is the story you just told and how you coach them through that. It encompasses all of what are my, at least on my list, all of my key elements of how to make good bets. So I'm going to read that back and just like call out the key elements that I saw. So if you're following along and you're thinking about how do I take that story and turn it into a bet in my own company, like follow along on what I'm about to say, right? So the first thing that happened in that company was they were instrumented for the status quo and they knew that they were getting leads, but the leads weren't turning into phone calls and that that was the biggest choke point in their funnel, right? They knew that they were closing deals once they got them on the phone, but they couldn't get the leads from A to B. So they were thinking, what if I get sales development reps, right? SDRs to go basically call these leads to set appointments so I can fix that sticking point in the funnel, right? Yep. Yep. So they knew the problem they were trying to solve. What is the one problem we're trying to solve? Exactly. So yeah, step one, what problem are we solving? That's the first thing. There's, that should be a one sentence answer. I'm trying to get my leads to get on the phone with my account executives, right? Like that's, that's the problem that they're trying to solve, right? So cool. From there, the next thing that you did was when we were evaluating that specific solution, right? Like step two is figure out the cost, the investment, right? What do we think this is going to cost? Because at the end of the day, like you're the first downside case that you should look at. Everyone looks at the upside case, right? I'm going to solve this. My conversion is going to go from 10% to 50%. I'm going to make 10 bazillion dollars and life's going to be great. Cool. Like that's fun. But you also got to look at the downside, right? And so I think the first yeah. downside is you make the investment, but nothing changes. What does that look like? So that's kind of step two is you identified like what's the cost, right? How many heads, internal or external? What are they going to get paid? Like, what does that look like? There are worse downsides. You can, you know, whatever, but outside the scope of this conversation, at least nothing else. We make the investment, nothing changes. Figure out what that looks like. The third that a lot of people, for whatever reason, sleep on that I love that you called out 
is the time element of it, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's easy to say, you know, people tend to talk inside of a specific month and be like, man, if my, you know, conversion rate from leads to booked calls went from 10% to 50%, my MRR would go from X to Y. It's like, cool. And it might like directionally in a month, but that's not how SaaS businesses work, right? I mean, you have compounding growth every single month. And if you think about the time value of money, like the sooner any outcome happens inherently makes it more valuable than the same outcome six months from now, right? Mm -hmm. So the third element that you nailed is let's put the upside onto a timetable, onto a timeline. Every decision we make needs to be onto a timeline because like, you know what starts immediately? Money you put into it, right? You got to yeah. hire people, you got to train them, they got to ramp. So we identified the problem, step one. We figured out the potential downside, the investment we had to make and like make sure that that was a cost we could live with, right? And then from there, we took the upside and put it on a timetable. So we know that it's not going to happen all at once. It's usually going to be some type of ramp. And then the fourth is you called out explicitly the opportunity cost, right? Because we cannot do 17 different growth initiatives. You can't make 17 bets in the same team. Guys, I got news for you. Like, it's a great way to split your focus and kind of suck at everything, <laughs> right? Yeah. So it's usually like one big bet per leader per quarter is usually how it shakes out in reality. So I love that you called out the opportunity cost of what else are we going to say no to? There's a lot of good ideas that Matt and Johnny say no to because they're not as good as some better ideas that are going to take up our bandwidth, right? There's no shortage yeah. of work. Those are the core four, right? Instrument the problem, know how to measure it, look at the downside and the investment, and make sure that you know you have the risk tolerance and the ability to weather that storm. Look at the upside, but put it on a timetable, right? And figure out how to compress those outcomes is step three. And step four, look at the opportunity cost and make sure you're aware of the things that you're saying no to. Like if you follow those four steps, chances are you're gonna you're gonna do all right. Like the fifth is just the X factor. It's the is this leader good enough at executing and is their intuition good enough to actually yeah. be right more than they're wrong that's the part yeah. that i struggle with teach yeah great 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 call outs matt you know i think what would be helpful you and i have both one improved our own ability to to make bets and think in bets in the way we lead second we've coached this quality in our team and then our founders i think it, it'd be helpful for us to as we coach this skill Let's talk through a couple of the, whether we call them best practices or common challenges that we see people getting hung up on. Anything come to mind right away? Yeah, I got a couple, man. I think the first I already talked about, which is not being able to measure the thing you're trying to fix or like sub point to that, not having yeah. the patience to go figure out how to measure the thing before you try to start fixing it. Because sometimes you just need to do that. Like, the right solution at the wrong time or applied to the wrong place in your business is still an epic waste of time and money, right? So I think yeah. that not being able to measure is a big one that we coach through. And then also different from that is not having the behavioral like rhythm of measuring things weekly. And I think like if you listen mm -hmm. to the episode we did on the precision scorecard, like that is why that scorecard is the key to growth is because when you yeah. have the weekly cadence, you can very quickly identify if you're moving the needle and tell the difference between your leading indicators and your lagging and, and all that kind of stuff. So I don't know, man, I'm a data guy, but like for me, it's you got to have a good, uh, like you got to have your arms wrapped around the problem, know what you're trying to solve, be able to measure the status quo. So, you know, if you're changing it and make sure that you're looking at that data every single week. So that way, like it, it shouldn't be this monumental effort to go measure the thing and see if the bet's working. So yeah. there's a ton of other places, man. But like, that's where I always start is I'm just like, oh, this is broken. Like, show me the numbers that show that it's broken. And let's just look at them and make sure the same thing you did with that founder you were coaching. So that's yeah. where I always start. What about you? 
You know, I think there's a couple of different pieces that I, I find myself coaching the team through. The first is the concept from Jim Collins on bullets versus cannonballs, right? So yeah. we don't go through, you know, the example on hiring the SDR team is one that it's very difficult to undo in short order. Sometimes we talk about type one versus type two decisions, right? Type one decisions are very hard to undo. Sometimes you walk through that door, you, know, you make the call. It's very difficult to reverse that decision. Those ones need to be scoped out and thought, you know, be a lot more intentional in how we approach those. Type two decisions, we can undo them pretty quickly. Like the Zendesk example at the beginning, that's a type two decision. Didn't need as much. It was early in my time of working with those co-founders that we needed to be able to build consensus. And you know, sometimes making a great bet, writing it down can be something used to build consensus and trust on a team. Yeah. And so for that one, in my opinion today, that'd be considered a bullet. It's, it's a lower risk bet, something we can undo very easily. So I tend to go through this process more so on a cannonball style bet, one that's going to take three, six months, you know, normally a lot more zeros involved in the bet that we're making. It could be people involved, you know, whether right. it's hiring or transitioning team members off. So that's the first one, thinking through bullets versus cannonballs, because you don't want to get into analysis paralysis. Sometimes we're coaching a founder through, hey, we just got to default to action. Like this is not a big, big decision. You got to get used to, at, like I mentioned, at, at SilverTrack in the early days, simple decision to use a product felt big at the time. By the time, yeah. you know, three, four years later, those are very, very small decisions. I think it's taking context, what's a big bet, what's a small one, and spending this type of time and rigor on the bigger bets. I tell you that the thing I've heard you do, I've heard you do this with your team and I love it, is you'll frequently ask people, how can we turn this cannonball into a bullet, right? Because yeah. I think that it's funny, there's this tension, I think, with team members because you want to have a really well thought out plan that looks at all the angles and it's like this intricate thing that's over a year and you're going to do this whole strategy. And it's funny because sometimes team members can look at that and the, the success lens for them is like, look at the completeness and depth of my thought. And then you bring it to, to guys like you and me. And we might be like, yes, that plan looks cool. But all I see a lot of the time is risk, not because I'm risk averse, yeah. but just because like big initiatives to me are a hurdle race. And so sometimes it's like, you know, if the bullet works, right? If the first couple hurdles go, okay, we'll probably do all that stuff that you sketched out in this big, intricate, you know, year long yeah. thing and spend all this money. But like, like, how do we spend five grand and see if anyone's interested in the widget or how do we, yeah. you know, whatever. Yeah, give me a great, great example of this, right? So you can have feature requests come up all the time for your software product and yeah. the cannonball is going straight into build mode and trying to build it out how do we turn a cannonball into a bullet is to say, let's build out the prototype first. Let's create a clickable prototype or let's have a service that does the thing first before we build it into the product. There's a number of ways to shrink the scope down to say, what would be the first milestone? If we were to go launch this big bet and we were to go down this path, what would be the first milestone that, would, that we can look to get some validation that we're on the right path? And I'd like to say, hey, let's just shrink it down to that because we can the, the core to the concept of bullets versus cannonballs is you can fire a lot more bullets than you can a cannonball. It takes a lot yeah. more effort to launch that. So we want to use bullets as a place for us to go get rapid validation, test lots of different things. And then when we start to gather some learnings and some feedback, now we can go calibrate for a much bigger bet. We can go build the product, hire the team, whatever. Now, one of the other 
best practices that I find myself constantly coaching the team through, especially if you're early. Look, we said this is leaders make great bets because it's not just the founder that makes a bet in a business. It is if you are especially in an early stage business, but if you're in any type of leadership capacity, you want to be in a leadership role, your ability to make great bets, it's what you get paid for. I mean, that is like leaders make good decisions. You don't get to stay in a leadership role if you're making bad decisions for very long. So if you're early in, in this process, best practice, like write the bet down, write it all down, put it into a Google doc. And then the second thing is share it with other people, read Hastings from Netflix, you know, coined this great term of farming for dissent. So take the written bet and a great way for you to calibrate the decision you're making. The first step is just write it down. The second step is share with other people and get their thoughts on it. Like what holes are they poking in? Like that is, that's an example of turning a cannonball into a bullet is, Hey, we think we want to go hire this team or we think we want to go, you know, do X, Y, Z and write it all down share with people who'd interact with them and say, Hey, how does this look to you? The better, you know, sometimes as founders, we get used to just gather the team together and verbally explain it. And the challenge is you introduce a whole nother variable. And that is how yeah. well are you communicating in addition to what is the bet? So when you write this thing down and you kind of pull all your, you know, here's the problem I'm trying to solve. Here are the, you know, the symptoms I'm seeing that you know point to this problem. Here's how I'd want to solve it. You know, and then as the team asks questions and poke holes, I literally put their questions down below, like, you know, concerns, you know, pros, cons. And I start writing out all the concerns and my responses. And I try to get on paper what is a really, really good bet, which number one, helps me make better bets. But number two is extremely rewarding when you come back. If you make that bet, you're three, six months down the line, you get to come back. You're building confidence as a leader and as a decision maker that you've got sound thinking. It's very helpful to come back and reflect and see the process because if you are a good leader and you make good bets, the size of your bets will grow. Like you go from making a Zendesk bet to like making a a team hire bet. And then one day you might make a bet on should we sell the company or should we not? Like the the risks really start to grow. So building the muscle and the confidence of like, hey, I'm a very disciplined decision maker. I involve my team. I think that's a a key, just it's a very small thing that can really help lead to you making better bets. Yeah, man, I'll tell you, like, just the clarity of thought that writing draws out of a person, like, even if you weren't going to share it with someone, although I agree that you should, but even if you weren't, like, I find frequently just by writing something down, I can figure it out more effectively than talking to you about it on a phone call. Like, sometimes I just have to go through the exercise of gathering and organizing my thoughts to fit it onto a page. And like, Sometimes that'll even give you the clarity you need before you even share it. I'm a big old plus one on, on writing stuff down. And, it, and it's not even just about how effective you are with verbal communication. I think another one, at least that I think of, is like sometimes for me personally, sometimes I just need a minute to chew on something. And there's some people who are really, really good at just like in the moment figuring out what they think or even a little bit more dangerous in the moment convincing everyone else that you're talking to that they've already thought through all the angles and that they have a well thought out thing where you can just be like, oh, I'm going to take a, a half baked opinion and I'm going to say it with a, an incredible degree of conviction and get everyone on board. But like, sometimes you just need a minute. Like I can't think of too many decisions in running a SaaS company that will burn the company down if you sleep on it. Like mm-hmm. you can usually oh, find 20 more hours to figure something out. So yeah. yeah, I would just, you know, if you're like, oh, I don't have time to write stuff down, you know, fast paced like look i mean i i love 
you know, pedal, pedal the floor all day long. But like, man, I'll tell you the couple of times where I've just taken a, taken a minute and thought something through, I find almost invariably I make higher quality decisions. So yeah. Even take, take the weekend, like literally you got to sit with it for a little while. Sometimes I'll use this language. I'll say, Hey, I want us all to leave this conversation. We've now put our bet on paper. I want us all to leave as if we're going to proceed with this, but we're going to, we're going to wait. And I want to see if anything comes up because you're going to get all these like triggers throughout your day to day that say, Oh, with this new lens, this new reality, like how would, you know, for my marketing team, as we go to decide to, to deploy SDRs how would this affect how I'm doing? Like, would this work still apply or how would it change this process? And new things will pop up if you just sit with it. I kind of, it's imagine it like you are driving and new forks and road will come up and the time spent saying, is this the direction that I want to go before we actually pull the trigger? Man, so much comes from just writing it down, taking the time. Matt, the third thing that I prompt my team with often is is doing nothing is making a bet as well. Yeah. Like not, not changing it is making a bet. So this goes back to your call on the previous episode on, on having a scorecard in place. Like if you're not measuring what you're doing on a daily basis, you you don't know how well the bet you've currently made is working. So like that's step one, like go get a scorecard in place that measures the effectiveness of your current bet. But we oftentimes find founders in a spot where they say, Hey, you know, I'm out of cash. I think I know the next thing that I want to do. And I just don't have the money to go make that bet. And here's a very important reality to deal with. You have already made bets today. You've already made some bets. And if you don't have the revenue growth to go continue to reinvest, you have to go close down some of those bets. This might mean you made a marketer hire or you invested in a feature or whatever, you know, whatever the the bet may be that didn't pan yeah. out to be revenue growth. And you got to go gather some more resources to make another bet. So learn something from the bets that you've made. Oftentimes we are, we're very slow to go look back and say, what were the bets I made three months ago or six months ago that didn't pan out? And how do I stop, you know, let's not fall into the sunk cost fallacy. Let's stop the bleeding where it's at right now. Let's recoup some of those resources so we can make a new bet. It's very easy to go try to go get more resources. This is why we find oftentimes founders are like, hey, I got to go raise, I got to go raise. And, yeah. you know, we are, we're writing a book on this very concept right now. It's like, hey, the, the business is telling you something about your ability to make great bets. Fundraising only, it can oftentimes put a illusion over how well you are making bets. Yeah. Instead, it's life, it's life support without curing the sickness, man. You know, yeah, like yeah, just yeah. Let you hide, it hide, lets you hide bad unit economics for however long the route the runway lasts you. You know, and and look, some businesses need that, but most of them don't. That's the reality. Most of them don't. Dude, you said something that just like I just gotta gotta shine a light on, especially if you're super early stage. Every bet you make needs to be anchored on growth, like getting to default alive, and unless you're raising money, de- like getting to a profitable state where your your business can self-sustain, right? I, I see companies that are tiny, you know, five, ten thousand dollars a month, twenty thousand dollars a month, and they're like making multi-year long brand building bets and like all this stuff. And I'm like, I'm not saying it's the wrong thing to do, but it's probably the wrong thing to do now. Right. Like mm-hmm. your your first mission needs to be to get your revenue high enough with unit economics that works so you can get your core team and ha- have enough where you're at least adding to your bank account month over month. So that way you can make sure your business isn't gonna die. And like we can get fancy later. So I just yeah, 
this was something that I didn't focus on enough. I, I had a, a healthy dose of luck in my first company in the early days, you know, and it's like we grew, but we didn't grow because of maniacal focus on growth. We grew because it happened and that was cool. But mm -hmm. man, like going at it again, it's like everything you have has to be focused on that at least until yeah. you get to a certain threshold. And like we just at early stage, you don't have the luxury of messing around. Everything has to go back to to growing top line revenue and making sure unit economics work. Like period, full stop. Yeah, this this one's probably worth going through another an episode on. But it, you know, building yeah. just a business that outlasts. Oftentimes, you know, one way to make sure you don't fail is to just outlast the competition yeah. and live to see another round. So sometimes I think of building a business like a game of poker, and I'm not like a big poker player, so I hope the analogy like still lands here. But imagine you got ten thousand dollars. And every hand costs you a thousand dollars to play. Well, like to start, you've got 10 rounds and yeah. to your ability to make a good bet in those first 10 rounds. If you are, you only get 10 of them. So the bets are like, you know, focus on this feature or to focus on this target market or to work on this partnership. You don't know how many you have. You probably can if you decide how much money, if, if founders were super disciplined about it and said, here's how much seed money I have and I'm going to make this thing work within those constraints or not, it'd be helpful because now you know how many bets you've got. And if you played that game of poker and you had the time that when you were dealt the hand, you could like, you know, you had the computer chat GPT there. Hey, what's my likelihood of winning this plan, you know, on this hand? And you had the ability to like really size up the risk. You probably have a lot more chance of, you know, winning, you're making it 12 hands and making it 20 hands. And if you're just the yeah. last one at the table, you can win. Durability is a great growth strategy. Like just live to see another round. So that like, yeah, dude, no. that's what makes a fast company better than running a shoe store, right? It means durable revenue is recurring revenue. Like it's, it makes it more exciting than selling carrots. It's getting the, getting the machine, the flywheel that actually turns, man. I love yeah. it. So here's, here's what I put call out to the audience. Matt and I would love to support you making great bets. If there's a bet that you are up against right now, you are considering, we'd love to hear from you. Find the comment section and let us know what you're working on. That'd be a great, I don't know what we'll do with it, but if you're working on a big bet, you want to chat through, drop it in the comments and we'll see what we can do. Shoot us an email at podcast.sasacademy.com. But this is a core company for a founder. I hope you found our conversation today to be super helpful. Matt, anything else to add? No, send us your bets. We might not know what we'll do with it, but we won't ignore it. We'll do something with it. And we would love to hear what you guys are working on. So thanks for hanging with us.